21, SS preferable to the hotel, and retired early to sleep in our carriage. A teamster tied his horses to our wheels, and as the brutes fell to kicking during the night, and attempted to break away, they disturbed our slumbers. I rose at daybreak and watched the yamshiks making their toilet. The whole operation was performed by tightening the girdle and rubbing the half-opened eyes. Morning brought no boat. There was nothing very interesting after we had breakfasted, and as we might be detained there a whole week, the prospect was not charming. We organized a hunting excursion. Mott with his gun and I with my revolver. I assaulted the magpies which were numerous and impertinent, and succeeded in frightening them. Gulls were flying over the lake. Mott desired one for his cabinet at Irkutsk, but couldn't get him. He brought down an enormous crow, and an imprudent hawk that pursued a small bird in our vicinity. His last exploit was in shooting a partridge which alighted, strange to say, on the roof of the hotel within twenty feet of a noisy crowd of yamshiks. The bird was of a snowy whiteness, the Siberian partridge changing from brown to white at the beginning of winter, and from white to brown again as the snow disappears. A Sudna or sailing barge was anchored at the entrance of the little bay, and was being filled with tea to be transported to Irkutsk. The Sudna is a bluff-bowed, broad-stern craft, a sort of cross between Noah's Ark and a Chinese junk. It is strong but not elegant, and might sail backward or sidewise nearly as well as ahead. Its carrying capacity is great in proportion to its length, as it is very wide and its sides rise very high above the water. Every Sudna I saw had but one mast which carried a square sail. These vessels can only sail with the wind, and then not very rapidly. An American pilot boat could pass a thousand of them without half trying. About noon we saw a thin wreath of smoke betokening the approach of the steamer. Enjoy at this welcome sight we dined and bought tickets for the passage. Powers of the first class being printed in gold, while Evans' billet for the deck was in democratic black. It cost 15 rubles for the transport of each tarantess, but our baggage was taken free, and we were not even required to unload it. There is no wharf at Prosalsky and no harbor. The steamers anchoring in the open water half a mile from shore. Passengers, mails, and baggage are taken to the steamer in large rowboats, while heavy freight is carried in Sudanus. The boat that took us brought a convoy of exiles before we embarked. They formed a double line at the edge of the lake where they were closely watched by their guards. When we reached the steamer we found another party of prisoners waiting to go on shore. All were clad in sheepskin pelisses and some carried extra garments. Several women and children accompanied the party, and I observed two or three old men who appeared little able to make a long journey. One sick man too feeble to walk was supported by his guards and his fellow prisoners, though there was little wind, and that little blew from shore, the boat danced uneasily on the waves, our carriages came off on the last trip of the boat, and were hoisted by means of a running tackle on one of the steamer's yards, while our embarkation was progressing a crew of Russians and Buryats towed the now laden Sudna to a position near our stern, when all was ready, we took her hawser, hoisted our anchor and steamed away. For some time I watched the low eastern shore of the lake until it disappeared in the distance. Prosalsky has a monastery built on the spot where a Russian ambassador with his suite was murdered by Buryats about the year 1680. The last objects I saw behind me were the walls, domes, and turrets of this monastery glistening in the afternoon sunlight. They rose clear and distinct on the horizon, an outwork of Christianity against the paganism of Eastern Asia. The steamer was the Ignalianif. A side-wheel boat of about 300 tons, 
Her model was that of an ocean or coasting craft. She had two masts, and could spread a little sail if desired. Her engines were built at E.K. Reinberg in the Ural Mountains, and hauled over a land 2,500 miles. She and her sister boat, the General Korsakoff, are very profitable to their owners during the months of summer. They carry passengers, mails, and light freight, and nearly always have one or two Sudanas in tow. Their great disadvantage at present is the absence of a port on the eastern shore. The navigation of Lake Baikal is very difficult. Storms arise with little warning, and are often severe. At times the boats are obliged to remain four days in the middle of the lake as they cannot always make the land while a gale continues. There was very little breeze when we crossed, but the steamer was tossed quite roughly. The winds blowing from the mountains along the lake frequently sweep with great violence and drive unlucky Sudanas upon the rocks. The water of the lake is so clear that one can see to a very great depth. The lake is nearly 400 miles long by about 30 or 35 in width. It is 1200 feet above the sea level, and receives nearly 200 tributaries great and small. Its outlet, the Angara, is near the southwestern end, and is said to carry off not more than a tenth of the water that enters the lake. What becomes of the surplus is a problem no one has been able to solve. The natives believe there is an underground passage to the sea, and sonic geologists favor this opinion. Soundings of 2000 feet have been made without finding bottom. On the western shore the mountains rise abruptly from the water, and in some places no bottom has been found at 400 feet depth, within pistol shot of the bank. This fact renders navigation dangerous, as a boat might be driven on shore in even a light breeze before her anchors found holding ground. The natives have many superstitions concerning Lake Baikal. In their language it is the Holy Sea, and it would be sacrilege to term it a lake. Certainly it has several marine peculiarities. Gulls and other ocean birds frequent its shores, and it is the only body of fresh water on the globe where the seal abounds. Banks of coral like those in tropical seas exist in its depths. The mountains on the western shore are evidently of volcanic origin, and earthquakes are not infrequent. A few years ago the village of Stepnoi, about 20 miles from the mouth of the Selenga, was destroyed by an earthquake. Part of the village disappeared beneath the water while another part after sinking was lifted 20 or 30 feet above its original level. Irkutsk has been frequently shaken at the foundations, and on one occasion the walls of its churches were somewhat damaged. Around Lake Baikal there are several hot springs, some of which attract fashionable visitors from Irkutsk during the season. The natives say nobody was ever lost in Lake Baikal. When a person is drowned there the waves invariably throw his body on shore. The lake does not freeze until the middle of December, and sometimes later. Its temperature remains pretty nearly the same at all seasons, about 48 degrees Fahrenheit. In winter it is crossed on the ice, the passage ordinarily occupying about 5 hours. The lake generally freezes when the air is perfectly still so that the surface is of glossy smoothness until covered with snow. A gentleman in Irkutsk described to me his feelings when he crossed Lake Baikal in winter for the first time. The ice was six feet thick, but so perfectly transparent that he seemed driving over the surface of the water. The illusion was complete, and not wholly dispelled when he alighted. Starting from the western side, the opposite coast was not visible, and I experienced, said my friend, the sensation of setting out in a sleigh to cross the Atlantic from Liverpool to New York. In summer and in winter communication is pretty regular, but there is a suspension of travel when the ice is forming and another when it breaks up. 
this causes serious inconvenience, and has led the government to build a road around the southern extremity of the lake. The mountains are lofty and precipitous, and the work is done at vast expense. The road winds over cliffs and crags sometimes near the lake and again 2,000 feet above it. Largo numbers of peasants, myriads, and prisoners have been employed there for several years, but the route was not open for wheeled vehicles at the time I crossed the lake. One mode of cutting the road through the mountains was to build large bonfires in winter when the temperature was very low. The heat caused the rock to crack so that large masses could be removed, but the operation was necessarily slow. The insurrection of June, 1866, occurred on this road. Formerly a winter station was kept on the ice halfway across the lake. By a sudden thaw at the close of one winter the men and horses of a station were swallowed up, and nothing was known of them until weeks afterward, when their bodies were washed ashore. Since this catastrophe the entire passage of the lake, about 40 miles, is made without change of horses. We left Kosalski and enjoyed a sunset on the lake. The mountains rise abruptly on the western and southeastern shores, and many of their snow-covered peaks were beautifully tinged by the fading sunlight. The illusion regarding distances was difficult to overcome, and could only be realized by observing how very slowly we neared the mountains we were approaching. The atmosphere was of remarkable purity, and its powers of refraction reminded me of past experience in the Rocky Mountains. We had sunset and moonrise at once. Adam had no more in Eden save the head of Eve upon his shoulder. The boat went directly across and then followed the edge of the lake to Listvanikna, our point of debarkation. There was no table on board. We ordered the samovar, made our own tea, and supped from the last of our commissary stores. Our fellow passengers in the cabin were two officers traveling to Irkutsk, and a St. Petersburg merchant who had just finished the Amor Company's affairs. We talked, ate, drank, smoked, and slept during the twelve hours journey. Congratulate us on our quick passage. On her very next voyage the steamer was eight days on the lake the wine blowing so that she could not come to either shore. To be cooped on this dirty and ill-provided boat long enough to cross the Atlantic is a fate I hope never to experience. There is a little harbor at Listvanikna and we came alongside a wharf. Mott departed with our papers to procure horses, and left me to look at the vanishing crowd. Take the passengers from the steerage of a lake or river steamer in America. Dress them in sheepskin coats and caps. Let them talk a language you cannot understand and walk them into a cloud of steam as if going overboard in a fog, and you have a passable reproduction of the scene. A bright fire should be burning on shore to throw its contrast of light and shadow over the surroundings and heighten the picturesque effect. Just as the deckhands were rolling our carriages on shore my companion returned, and announced our horses ready. We sought a little office near the head of the wharf where the chief of the Tamajna Custom House held his court. This official was known to Mr. Mock and on our declaring that we had no dutiable effects we were passed without search. As before remarked all the country east of Lake Baikal is open to free trade. This result has been secured by the efforts of the present Governor-General of Eastern Siberia. Under his liberal and enlightened policy he has done much to break down the old restrictions and develop the resources of a country over which he holds almost autocratic power. It was about three in the morning when we started over the frozen earth. Two miles from the landing we reached the custom house barrier where a pole painted with the government colors stretched across the road. Presenting our papers from the chief officer we were not detained, 
On the steamer when we were nearing harbor our conversation turned upon the custom house. It was positively asserted that the officials were open to pecuniary compliments. Much, I presume like those in other lands, the gentlemen from the Amor had considerable baggage, and prepared a five-ruble note to facilitate his business. Evidently he gave too little or did not bribe the right man, as I left him vainly imploring to be let alone in the center of a pile of open baggage, like Marius in the ruins of Carthage. The road follows the right bank of the Angara from the point where it leaves the lake. The current here is very strong, and the river rushes and breaks like the rapids of the St. Lawrence. For several miles from its source it never freezes even in the coldest winters. During the season of ice this open space is the resort of many waterfowl and is generally enveloped in a cloud of mist. At the head of the river rises a mass of rock known as Shaman Cayman Spirits Rock. It is held in great veneration by the natives, and is believed to be the abode of a spirit who constantly overlooks the lake. When shamanism prevailed in this region many human sacrifices were made at the sacred rock. The most popular method was by tying the hands of the victim and tossing him into the hell of waters below. Many varieties of fish abound in the lake and ascend its tributary rivers. The fishery forms quite a business for the inhabitants of the region, who find a good market at Irkutsk. The principal fish taken are two or three varieties of sturgeon, the herring, pike, carp, the oskina, and a white fish called timane. There is a remarkable fish consisting of a mass of fat that burns like a candle and melts away in the heat of the sun or a fire. It is found dead on the shores of the lake after violent storms. A live one has never been seen. The distance to Irkutsk from our landing was about 40 miles, and we hoped to arrive in time for breakfast. A snowstorm began about daylight, so that I did not see much of the wooded valley of the river. We met a train of 60 or 70 carts, each carrying a cask of vodka. This liquid misery was on its way to the Transbaikal, and the Sudna which brought a load of tea would carry vodka as a return cargo. The clouds thinned and broke, the snow ceased falling, and the valley became distinct. While I admired its beauty, we reached the summit of a hill and I saw before me a cluster of glittering domes and turrets, rising from a wide bend in the Angara. At first I could discern only churches, but very soon I began to distinguish the streets, avenues, blocks, and houses of a city. We entered Irkutsk through its eastern gate, and drove rapidly along a wide street, the busiest I had yet seen in Asiatic Russia, just as the sun burst in full splendor through the departing clouds. I alighted in the capital of Oriental Siberia, half around the world from my own home. Chapter XXXIV. As we entered the city a Cossack delivered a letter announcing that I was to be handed over to the police, who had a lodging ready for me. On learning of my presence at Kyotka the Governor General kindly requested an officer of his staff to share his rooms with me. Captain Paul, with whom I was quartered, occupied pleasant apartments overlooking the Gastini Devere. He was leading a bachelor life in a suite of six rooms, and had plenty of space at my disposal, that I might lose no time. The chief of police stationed the Cossack with a letter telling me where to drive. I removed the dust and costume of travel as soon as possible, and prepared to pay my respects to the Governor General. My presentation was postponed to the following day, and as the Russian etiquette forbade my calling on other officials before I had seen the chief, there was little to be done in the matter of visiting. The next morning I called upon General Korsakov, delivered my letters of introduction, and was most cordially welcomed to Irkutsk. 
the Governor-General of Eastern Siberia controls a territory larger than all European Russia, and much of it is not yet out of its developing stage. He has a heavy responsibility upon his shoulders in leading his subjects in the way best for their interests and those of the crown. Much has been done under the energetic administration of General Korsakov and his predecessor, and there is room to accomplish much more. The general has ably withstood the cares and hardships of his Siberian life. He is 45 years of age, active and vigorous, and capable of doing much before his way of life is fallen into the sear and yellow leaf. Like Madame de Stahl, he possesses the power of putting visitors entirely at their ease. To my single countrywomen I will whisper that General Korsakov is of about medium height, has a fair complexion, blue eyes, and Saxon hair, and a face which the most crabbed misanthrope could not refuse to call handsome. He is unmarried, and if rumor tells the truth, not under engagement, the Governor-General lives in a spacious and elegant house on the bank of the Angara, built by a merchant who amassed an immense fortune in the Chinese trade. On retiring from business he devoted his time and energies to constructing the finest mansion in eastern Siberia. It is a stone building of three stories, and its halls and parlors are of liberal extent. Furniture was brought from St. Petersburg at enormous cost, and the whole establishment was completed without regard to expense. At the death of its builder the house was purchased by government, and underwent a few changes to adapt it to its official occupants. On the opposite bank of the river there is a country seat, the private property of General Korsakov, and his dwelling place in the hot months. It was my good fortune that Mr. Mock was obliged by etiquette to visit his friends on returning from his journey. I arranged to accompany him, and during that day and the next we called upon many persons of official and social position. These included the governor and vice-governor of Irkutsk, the chief of staff and heads of departments, the mayor of the city and the leading merchants. Succeeding days were occupied in receiving return visits, and when these were ended I was fairly a member of the Society of the Siberian Capital. The evening after my arrival I returned early to my lodgings to indulge in a Russian bath. Captain Paul was absent, but his servant managed to inform me by words and pantomime that all was ready. On the captain's return the man said he had told me in German that the bath was waiting. How did you speak German? asked the captain, aware that his man knew nothing but Russian. Oh, said the servant. I rubbed my hands over my face and arms and pointed toward the bathroom. On the morning after my arrival the proprietor of the house asked for my passport, when it returned it bore the visa of the chief of police. There is a regulation throughout Russia that every hotel keeper or other householder shall register his patrons with the police. By this means the authorities can trace the movements of suspects and prevent unlicensed travel. In Siberia the plan is particularly valuable in keeping exiles on the spots assigned them. At Street Petersburg and Moscow the police keep a directory and hold it open to the public. When I reached the capital and wished to find some friends who arrived a few days before me, I obtained their address from this directory. Those who sought my whereabouts found me in the same way. The weather was steadily cold about zero Fahrenheit and was called mild for the season by the residents of Irkutsk. I brought from New York a heavy overcoat that braved the storms of Broadway the winter before my departure. My Russian friends pronounced it nechvo nothing, and advised me to procure a shuba, or cloak lined with fur. The shuba reaches nearly to one's feet, and is better adapted to riding than walking. It can be lined according to the means and liberality of the wearer. Sable is most expensive, and sheepskin the least. Both accomplish the same end. 
as they contain about equal quantities of heat. The streets of Irkutsk are of good width and generally intersect at right angles. Most of the buildings are of wood, and usually large and well built. The best houses are of stone, or of brick covered with plaster to resemble stone. Very few dwellings are entered directly from the street. The outer door is opening into a yards according to the Russian custom. To visit a person you pass into an enclosure through a strong gateway, generally open by day but closed at night. A Gornik doorkeeper has the control of this gate, and is responsible for everything within it. Storehouses and all other buildings of the establishment open upon the enclosure, and frequently two or more houses have one gate in common. The stores or magazines are numerous, and while supplied with European goods, some of the stocks are very large, and must require heavy capital or excellent credit to manage them. Tailors and milliners are abundant, and bring their modes from Paris. Occasionally they paint their signs in French, and display the latest novelties from the center of fashion. Bakers are numerous and well patronized. France whiskey clig, French bread, which is simply white bread made into rolls, is popular and largely sold in Irkutsk. One of my daily exercises in Russian was to spell the signs upon the stores. In writing I could rarely get more than half through a word before I was whisked out of sight. I never before knew how convenient are symbolic signs to a man who cannot read. A picture of a hat, a glove, or a loaf of bread was far more expressive to my eye than the word chapka, perchatki, or klieg, printed in Russian letters. The Russians smoke a great deal of tobacco in paper cigarettes or papyrus. Everywhere east of Lake Baikal the papyrus of Irkutsk is in demand, and the manufacture there is quite extensive. In Irkutsk and to the westward the brand of Moscow is preferred. The consumption of tobacco in this form throughout the empire must be something enormous. I have known a party of half a dozen persons to smoke a hundred cigarettes in an afternoon and evening. Many ladies indulge in smoking, but the practice is not universal. I do not remember any unmarried lady addicted to it. Irkutsk was founded in 1680, and has at present a population of 28 or 30,000. About 4,000 gold miners spend the winter and their money in the city. Geographically it is in latitude 52 degrees 40 north, and longitude 104 degrees 20 east from Greenwich. Little wine blows there, and storms are less frequent than at Moscow or St. Petersburg. The snows are not abundant, the quantity that falls being smaller than in Boston and very much less than in Montreal or Quebec. In summer or winter the panorama of Irkutsk and its surroundings is one of great beauty. There are 20 or more churches of which nearly all are large and finely placed. Several of them were planned and constructed by two Swedish engineer officers captured at Poltawa and exiled to Siberia. They are excellent monuments of architectural skill, and would be ornamental to any European city. The Angara at Irkutsk is about 600 yards wide, and flows with a current of 6 miles an hour. It varies in height not more than 10 or 12 inches during the entire year. It does not freeze until the middle of January and opens early in May. There are two swinging ferries for crossing the river. A stout cable is anchored in midstream, and the ferry boat attached to its anchored end. The slack of the cable is buoyed by several small boats, over which it passes at regular intervals. The ferry swings like a horizontal pendulum, and is propelled by turning its sides at an angle against the current. I crossed on this ferry in four minutes from bank to bank. There are many public carriages in the streets to be hired at 30 kopecks the hour, but the drivers, like their profession everywhere, are inclined to overcharge. Everyone who thinks he can afford it, keeps a team of his own, 
the horses being generally of European stock. A few horses have been brought from St. Petersburg, the journey occupies a full year, and the animals, when safely arrived, are very costly. Private turnouts are neat and showy, and on a fine afternoon the principal drives of the city are quite gay. General Korsakoff has a light wagon from New York for his personal driving in summer. I found here a curious regulation. Slaves are prohibited by municipal law from carrying bells in the limits of the city. Reason, in a great deal of noise pedestrians might be run over. In American cities the law requires bells to be worn. Reason, unless there is a noise pedestrians might be run over. You pays your money and you takes your choice. Cossack policemen watch the town during the day. And at night there are mounted and foot patrols carrying muskets with fixed bayonets. Every block and sometimes every house has its private watchman. And at regular intervals during the night you may hear these guardians thumping their long staves on the pavement to assure themselves and others that they are awake. The fire department belongs to the police. And its apparatus consists of hand engines, water carts, and hook and ladder wagons. There are several watchtowers from which a semaphore telegraph signals the existence of fire. An electric apparatus was being arranged during my stay. During my visit there was an alarm of fire, and I embraced the opportunity to see how the Russians run with the machine. When I reached the street the engines and water carts were dashing in the direction of the fire. The water carts were simply large casks mounted horizontally on four wheels, a square hole in the top served to admit a bucket or a suction hose. Those carts bring water from the nearest point of supply, which may be the river or an artificial reservoir. According to the locality of the fire, engines and carts are drawn by horses, which appear well selected for strength and activity. All the firemen wore brass helmets. The burning house was small and quite disengaged from others, and as there was no wine there was no danger of a serious conflagration. The chief of police directed the movements of his men. The latter worked their engines vigorously. But though the carts kept in active motion the supply of water was not equal to the demand. For some time it seemed doubtful which would triumph. The flames or the police. Fortune favored the brave. The building was saved. Though in a condition of incipient charcoalism. The chief of police wore his full uniform and decorations as the law requires of him when on duty. During the affair he was thoroughly spattered with water and covered with dirt and cinders. When he emerged he presented an appearance somewhat like that of a butterfly after passing through a sausage machine. A detachment of soldiers came to the spot but did not form a cordon around it. Every spectator went as near the fire as he thought prudent, but was careful not to get in the way. Two or three thousand officers, soldiers, merchants, exiles, mujiks, women, boys, and beggars gathered in the street to look at the display. The Russian fire engines and water carts with their complement of men, and each drawn by three horses abreast, present a picturesque appearance as they dash through the streets. The engines at Irkutsk are low-powered squirts, worked by hand, less effective than the hand engines used in America 20 or 30 years ago, and far behind our steamers of the present day. In Moscow and St. Petersburg the fire department has been greatly improved during the past 10 years, and is now quite efficient. The markets of Irkutsk are well supplied with necessaries of life. Beef is abundant and good, at an average retail price of 7 kopecks a pound. Fish and game are plentiful, and sell at low figures. The Rajik, or wood hen, is found throughout Siberia, and is much cheaper in the market than any kind of domestic fowl. Pork, veal, and mutton are no more expensive than beef. 
and all vegetables of the country are at corresponding rates. In fact if one will rest to European luxuries he can live very cheaply at Irkutsk. Everything that comes from beyond the Urals is expensive. On account of the long land carriage, champagne costs 5 or 6 rubles a bottle, and a great quantity of it is drank. Sherry is from 2 to 7 rubles according to quality, and the same is the case with white and red wines. The lowest price of sugar is 30 kopecks the pound, and it is oftener 45 or 50. Porter and ale cost 2 or 3 rubles a bottle, and none but the best English brands are drank. The wines are almost invariably excellent, and any merchant selling even a few cases of bad wine would very likely lose his trade. Cloves and all articles of personal wear cost about as much as in St. Louis or New Orleans. Labor is neither abundant nor scarce. A good man servant receives 10 to 15 rubles a month with board. Wood comes in soon as from the shores of Lake Baikal and is very cheap. These vessels descend the river by the force of the current, but in going against it are towed by horses. The principal marketplace is surrounded with shops where a varied and miscellaneous lot of merchandise is sold. I found ready-made clothing, crockery, boots, whiskey, hats, furniture, flour, tobacco, and so on through a long list of saleable and insaleable articles. How such a mess could find customers was a puzzle. Nearly all the shops are small and plain, and there are many stalls or stands which require but a small capital to manage. A great deal of haggling takes place in transactions at these little establishments, and I occasionally witnessed some amusing scenes. The best time to view the market is on Sunday morning, when the largest crowd is gathered. My first visit was made one Sunday when the thermometer stood at 15 degrees Fahrenheit. The market houses and the open square were full of people, and the square abounded in horses and sleds from the country. A great deal of traffic was conducted on these sleds or upon the solid snow-packed earth. The crowd comprised men, women, and children of all ages and all conditions in life. Peasants from the country and laborers from the city, officers, tradesmen, heads of families, and families without heads, busy men, and idlers, were mingled as at a popular gathering in City Hall Park. Everybody was in warm garments, the lower classes wearing coats and pelisses of sheepskin while the others were in furs more or less expensive. Occasionally a drunken man was visible, but there were no indications of a tendency to fight. The intoxicated American, eight times out of ten, endeavors to quarrel with somebody, but our Muscovite neighbor is of a different temperament. When drunk he falls to caressing and gives kisses in place of blows. The most novel sight that day in the market at Irkutsk was the embrace of two drunken peasants. They kissed each other so tenderly and so low.